good work. So we do miss Megan, but she leaves behind a very good team, and they make it very easy. Um, what happens is the process is I send Jeff the songs on Monday. On Tuesday, he makes all the corrections. <laughs> and then we put it together after, after Jess tells me what to do. So <laughs> um, I'm Joe Davis, uh, one of the pastors here. We've been continuing our series on 1 John, and I'm really enjoying this series a lot. There's so much good stuff in there. <clears throat> the title of the series is So Our Joy is Complete, and the concept behind it was John was writing this book so that those who heard it, those who read it, would have joy that was complete. And we're going to see a little bit today on the historical part of this why that was necessary. So um, the title today is called Proof in the Pudding. I'm going to really educate you on some really cool trivia today. You're going to love this. So that's pudding. Some of you look at it and say, oh, nasty. Oh, those, man, that looks good right there, right? Pudding. Did you know the original phrase, proof is in the pudding, was actually this. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. By a small sample, we may judge the whole piece. The phrase dates back to the 14th century in England. The proof is in the pudding. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And by a small sample, we may judge of the whole piece. And just like lazy Americans, we shortened it to proof is in the pudding. But in reality, it's not about dessert. This phrase in the 14th century was actually about sausage. <laughs> because back then they would call, one of the names for sausage was pudding. And so pudding in this phrase was referring to sausage that was stuffed with all kind of mixture of minced meats and oatmeal and all kind of different things and some seasoning. In other words, what the saying was saying was, the only way to know what's in the sausage is to eat it and to taste it and experience it. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And today we kind of use that phrase to judge how effective or true something is toward its intended purpose. So that's the idea. The proof is in the pudding. So let's read the passage today from John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. It's a small <clears throat> section. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So let's look at the history of this passage. You can tell it's kind of got a rhythm to it. The first thing I want to make sure you understand is this church, the ones that John was writing to, had been robbed of joy. I've talked about the Gnostics and the false teaching that had come through. I'm not going to belabor all those again today. But the false teachers had come in and they had wreaked havoc. And I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the main focuses of this sect of Gnosticism that had infested this church was attacking men specifically. Manhood, the role of men, and all, they were attacking them. Matter of fact, one of the things that this sect of Gnosticism was teaching was that, no, 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 Eve was created before Adam. Eve was superior to Adam. Eve told Adam what to do. In reality, ladies, you don't want that to be true because it really was all Adam's fault to begin with. You know that, right? It's a true story. It wasn't Eve's fault. But here's the problem. The men in these churches were under constant political, 
spiritual, cultural attack. But don't worry, the concept that we're teaching today is for everyone. But the reason John hones in on just the men, it's not because he's a misogynist. It's because in this particular church, in this area, this brand of Gnosticism was really attacking men. We'll get into some of the specifics later on in this series, but trust me, it was pretty bad. So many of these young men were struggling with doubt. They weren't sure. I thought I knew the gospel. I thought Jesus had saved me, but now I'm not even sure if I'm forgiven. And what John does is he addresses three different groups, right? He addresses the little children. Then he addresses fathers. Then he addresses young men in this passage. But as I said, his encouragement is for everyone. So that was the impact of the false teaching. There was a lot of doubt going around, especially in the men that were in this church under constant scrutiny. But then we have the pastoral inspiration that takes place. You know, it is not a coincidence that all of this that he's singing, this is really kind of what you'll see later. It's actually a song that he's writing. It's actually a song. It comes on the heels of John talking about, what did we say last week? Fresh love. And how important it is to love one another. Because what he does is an incredible act of love. Because their joy had been robbed by the Gnostics and all the false teachers. And he says, I am writing this so that your joy will be full. So this letter for him is, in fact, a labor of love, passion, and encouragement. And I know this because he says in the first part of the book, I am writing this so your joy will be full. Now, for the better part of the first two chapters, John has been setting up some proofs to look for. Look, if you truly love Christ, if you're walking in the light, then you'll understand you're sinful. If you're walking in the light, then you'll understand that Christ is your advocate. And if you're walking in the light, you'll also have a love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But he's not writing this to guilt them. Look, you don't know what's going on. If you really love Jesus, then you'll do this, this, and this. That's not the tone of the book. A lot of people think it's the tone like, well, he's really letting them have it. If you really love Jesus, then you're going to you know, know that you're a sinner and, and you're going to love other people. And if you don't love them, you're not a Christian. That's not really the tone of the book. He's actually saying, look, I see these things in your life. I see that you know you're a sinner. I see that you love one another. I see that you understand that Christ is your advocate to the Father and he's advocating to you for righteousness. I see all that in your life. And it is proving to me that you are children of God. So it wasn't a, you better straighten up. It was more like a, hey, listen, guys, you're okay. Don't listen to the Gnostics. You're okay. He was sharing things he had seen in their lives. He's pointing it out to them. Look, don't worry about those idiots. And John's encouragement, actually, if you think about it, right, would really mean something because, you know, he was personally connected to these churches. He was an apostle. And look, if an apostle says, I'm writing you because your sins are forgiven, well, you can start saying, well, hey, maybe I'm okay. See, the very things he has been writing about, he is saying, listen, guys, I see these things in you. And so it comes to a song of encouragement. It really is written as a poem or a song. And he's saying, hey, listen, there is proof in your pudding. So he writes this poetic, rhythmic, repetitious, 
passionate encouragement. You see, the way poetry was seen back then, it was tied to singing very closely. Very rarely did someone write a poem and not have singing to go with it. And the reason for this is very clear. In this time, a much smaller portion of the society was literate. And so repetition was often used to make sure that people that couldn't read would understand the main point of truth. And that is why John, he's writing this book, and it's a, it's a great theological treatise, but then he sets aside, and he almost writes it, says, by the way, here is a pudding hymn. And he creates this short two-verse song that was probably sung in the churches. Like, as you can understand, they were coming off grief and angst and frustration and discouragement. They didn't know what was going on. And the apostle John writes them this song. And he says, I'm writing you little children because you're forgiven. I'm writing you young men because you are walking him and you are overcoming. I'm writing you fathers because you are with him and the word of God is in you. And they say, wow, this is really encouraging. We should talk about this a lot. So let's break down the song. Verse one, little children, you're forgiven. Then he says, fathers, you know him. Young men, you have overcome. Very interesting. There's something that's been in the news quite a bit lately. This Nike stuff. You know the word overcome? You know what it is? It's the Greek word nikao. It's where we get the word Nike. You know what it means? It means to carry off the victory, to come off victorious. And what he's saying is, young men, you're victorious. Even though the Gnostics are telling you all this stuff about how you're not as good as them, you haven't arrived at that higher plane of understanding, you are beneath them, don't listen to them. You have nikao, you have overcome, you have gotten the victory, you have come off victorious. That's verse 1. Children, you're forgiven. Fathers, you know him. Young men, you have conquered. Then verse 2. Children, you know him. Fathers, you know him. Young men, you're strong. The word is in you, and you have overcome. He starts and ends both verses with the word Nike, nikao, overcome, conquer, get the victory. So you can see, right, it has a rhythmic, poetic flow to it. It is so they would learn. Listen, when you start doubting again, and you start feeling like the Gnostics are closing in on you, are talking all this crap to you about how you're not a Christian, listen to me, little children. You're forgiven. Fathers, you know him. Young men, you've overcome. Children, you know him. Fathers, you know him. Young men, you're strong. The word is in you. And yes, you have overcome. I want you to know as your elder, as your apostle, as your pastor, I see tons of proof in the pudding. It's comparable to like a locker room at halftime when a team is down and their confidence is shaken and they need to come back and win. It's probably what happened in the Kentucky locker room last night at halftime. Gator fans, sorry, I couldn't resist. And this is what's going on. They're at halftime here and they're struggling. They're discouraged. I thought we knew Jesus and these people are coming in. Paul and John says, ignore them. You know him. You're forgiven. You're victorious. The word of God is in you. That's good stuff, isn't it? I mean, John's a good pastor. He really knows what he's doing. Let's look at the spiritual side. I want to talk about trusting the God in us. So John had tremendous confidence, right, in the fact that these people were children of God. But his confidence went far beyond the gospel in his own heart and life. He knew that the gospel extended without fail each and every time to each and every child of God. 
Even if false teachers were interfering, John knew that the gospel would prevail, God would prevail, and nothing could separate them from those who God loves. He had unwavering confidence in the ubiquitous, timeless, irresistible, irreversible impact of grace through Christ. That work of Christ that was a continuous continuous action spreading across all eternity. And it provided tremendous confidence in what God was doing in their lives. This pudding had proof because of what Christ had done, what he was doing and what he would do. And John saw an abundance of evidence that proved the pudding. The first thing he says, in a matter of fact, these are verses from his gospel that he wrote not too long before 1 John. They all kind of are bunched together. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. And he wrote this in, first, in, in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, John knew that those whom God was saving, that he had called them. They had not chosen God, but God had chosen them. They had been called by the shepherd. And he says, I speak, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So John knew that they had been called. One of the reasons he had confidence is because he had seen God call them. And the other thing that John knows and why he trusts the gospel, trusts the God in them, is that they are secured. That's what's happening at that point, right then. Even in the midst of all these false teachers telling him, hey, you're worthless. John 6, 39, from the same book, the Gospel of John. John says, and it's the words of Jesus, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but I will raise them up on the last day. See, John knew that once they had been called, there is nothing that anyone or anything can do to separate them from that calling. So they were called in the past. They are secured at that moment. And then John knows they will be glorified in the future. In John 17, verse 24, here's what Jesus says. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So much in there. What he's saying is, Father, he's praying, those you have given to me, I'm trusting you to bring them to us together in heaven and love them as you did me before the foundation of the world. Not the moment there was a decision, not the moment they came to church for the first time, but when you called them before the foundation of the world. And John knows that Jesus knows that God is going to keep all that the Father has given to him. I love the way Paul put, or Peter puts this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Let's read this. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be, caused us to be born again. That's a passive verb. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, by whom God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the gospel that John had confidence in. This is the reason he, as an apostle, as a pastor, as a shepherd, could say, hey, little children, 
you're forgiven. Hey, dads, Christ is in you. Young men, you have conquered. Because he knew that God was working past, present, and future to make sure that all that God had given Christ, including us, that follow him and, and call him our Savior, that all would be brought to eternity, to glory. None would fade. None would fail. None would ever be plucked out of his hand. See, this gave John the inspiration to write an emotional, creative, passionate, heartfelt song about what he saw as the state of their souls. Because the proof of their salvation was in the pudding that Christ has made from the foundation of the world to that day and going forward. As their pastor, he saw the evidence of the work of Christ in their lives. So let's come to the personal side. I want to tell you, I love pudding. I adore pudding. Not the meat kind, by the way. The kind with chocolate. Sometimes you put bananas in it. There's whipped cream, graham crackers all over the place. I adore it. I'll tell you, though, as a coach, I coached football and basketball for years. As a coach, the most satisfying moments for me was when a player or a team finally believed in a concept I've been trying to teach them and it paid off on the field or on the court with success. Because I loved seeing their faces as they would walk off the court or the field after a play and say, wow, coach, that worked. <laughs> I got to tell you, their faces would light up. They're saying, it's like, you know, I, I remember this, I, when I was coaching uh, varsity girls basketball at Riverview, there was this girl who was a good player. She was a senior and she didn't play much, but I saw that she she could, might be able to be a good shooter. So I took her after practice one day and I taught her how to shoot threes. And she became the best shooter on the team like overnight. It was crazy. Not because I'm a good coach, because she was talented. I said, look, just put your elbow here, your knee. And I just showed her some things. And it was like, I'm going to the WNBA. <laughs> she started lighting up threes. Coach would put her in, in in crucial parts of the game and set her up for a three and she'd nail it. And I would see her come running off the court. She's excited. She's happy. She would hug Coach Davis and she would sit down. It was like, Wow. That was so fun. So during my social media campaign this week, I said, it is fun, so fun to tell people how much evidence there is that Christ has in fact transformed them. As a pastor, this are the, these are the moments I live for. I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff, you know. I like playing music, you know, three times a year at the most, you know. <clears throat> I like preaching. All that stuff is cool, but there is nothing more fun than going to somebody in my church or in my life and say, hey, i got to tell you something. There's overwhelming evidence that Christ has saved you. And then start counting it off for them. I see how you do this. I see what God has done that. I remember when God called you. I see how he's kept you. And I can't wait to see what you turn into. It's the same for me as a pastor when I see evidence of God's sovereign, timeless, eternal work of faith in your lives. It's so fun to see it. I just, I wish I could come up with better words. I love to tell you about it when I see it in your life. I love affirming your gift of faith. I love it when there is overwhelming evidence of the power of God on you. I love pulling you aside and encouraging you about your walk with Christ. I mean, I got to tell you, when I have seasons of doubt, and by the way, I don't care. Every pastor who's honest will be admitted to you. We all doubt. Am I really a child of God? Yes, even pastors. 
Matter of fact, especially pastors. Because we got to put on a good show, right? Oh, he's a rock. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm a pebble falling in the stream somewhere sometimes. And I have seasons of doubt. But seeing the work in you reminds me how real it is. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's hard for me to see what God's doing in my life. But then I look at your life. And I can see it and I say, wow, man, how can I doubt God when I see what he's done in her life or his life? It's so important to affirm the proof in the pudding when we see it. And we need to do it often. You know why? Because it makes our joyful. And I see it in so many of you, almost all of you, except Mark Curtis. I see it in so many of you. You came in late, so I had to get you. But when I see, when I see proof in your pudding... I want you to know I'm going to be there as your pastor, even in my times of doubt, to pick you up off the ground. And I hope that you'll do the same to me. Because you know what? Sometimes I doubt. I need to hear from you. You need to hear it from me. It's got to go both ways. But for this to work, for this to happen, you know what has to happen? Unfortunately, we got to spend time together. (laughs) It has to be a priority. Like, for example... I was, I got to tell you, I was so encouraged about what happened yesterday with the women's ministry and this flamingo thing. And it was like 35 women showed up and they had a lot of of like, like brunch type foods. That's not the part I was excited about. I was excited (laughs) about the fact that they were with one another laughing, have a good talk, talking about what's going on in their lives, in the church. That stuff's got to happen a lot for our joy to be full. To be able to see when we are actually showing evidences of the sovereign work of Christ in our lives. I mean, John spent a lot of time in Asia Minor with these churches. Guys, we must know each other. We must spend time together. It must be a priority. Because that is when, listen, when we are together and we encourage the work of Christ in our lives like John did with this song, that's when we develop courage. When times get dark. That's when we can cling to hope when things start to get hard. That's where we get our strength from. That's where we get our motivation. Our strength and motivation is not from some great sermon we see here or on YouTube. It is from one another when we say, hey, I see it in you. You got this. That's when our joy becomes full. Because we know the work of Christ, who sacrificed everything, is having a full effect on our lives. Guys, this is what makes our joy full. When evidence of forgiveness and overcoming and the word being in us is pointed out. When it's undeniable, right? And affirmed by those who know us best. Grace life, I can tell you, I see it in your lives. And I have confidence in it for the same reasons John did. Because of that timeless work of Christ. I trust the God in you. I have no choice but to trust the God in you because the evidence that he's in you is overwhelming because of the cross. So what we're going to do today, we're going to close with one more song. It's another, it's a hymn. The team can come up here now, right now. (laughs) Can't do it without you. 
So we understand we feel full in our confidence and our joy, but we also know that the reason is it's because of the blood of Jesus. The work of Christ. So this hymn that I picked out, Nothing But the Blood, it's probably my favorite. It's really simple, really straightforward, but as we sing it, don't just think about it for yourself, but as we sing it, celebrate what Christ has done in the lives of those around you, those whom, whom, with whom you see overwhelming evidence and proof in the pudding. After church today, take a minute or two just to find somebody that you know. Give them a hug and say, hey, I want you to know. I know Christ has forgiven you. I see the evidence. I know you're overcoming. I know you're strong. Wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. first verse again. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of... Oh, precious is the flow. No, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other clouds i know nothing but the blood of
Nothing but the blood of Jesus This is all my righteousness Nothing but the blood of Jesus And oh, precious is the flow But the blood of Jesus Nothing but the blood of opportunity to encourage those around you when you see evidence of the work of Christ in their life. Speak it often. Speak it boldly so that our joy, our joy may be full.